You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. Today it's Monday, August 5th, 2019, and we're still reeling from the mass shootings that claimed 20 lives in El Paso on Saturday and another nine in Dayton, Ohio on Sunday. And these are just the latest mass shootings of 2019. 12 people died in Virginia Beach, Virginia in May, and five people died in Aurora, Illinois in February. So here at Mental Health Association Oklahoma, our job is to educate the community that it is dangerous to link mental health with violence. The fact is that most people with serious mental illnesses are never violent. One of the stats that I always tell reporters is that someone with mental illness is 11 times more likely to be the victim of violence than to perpetrate it. And to back that up, a Surgeon General's report on mental health found that the contribution of mental health conditions to violence in our society is very small. So in the aftermath of mass shootings, the news media often turn to our guest today, Mike Bros, who is the CEO of Mental Health Association Oklahoma. They call up Mike and they want answers. They want to understand why these sort of events happen and how the general public can cope with them. You know, sadly, Mike's had to answer these questions for decades, including in the aftermath of Columbine, Sandy Hook, and honestly, too many others. So, Mike, welcome to the Mental Health Download. Thanks, Matt. I'm always glad to be a participate in the download. Any chance I get an opportunity to. So. You know, my first question is, tell us about some of those coping mechanisms that you always tell people in the aftermath of these mass shootings. Well, I think, uh, Matt, the, one of the things to, for, the, your, for the listeners of the download to keep in mind is that of all the gun deaths in the country, only about 2% um, are attributable, attributable to some sort of mass casualty event. So we've got a lot of people, there's a lot of use of firearms in our, in our culture right now, particularly in American culture. And so, and the majority of those are really around outside that 2%, they're around uh, attempts towards self-harm, suicide. Uh, also, uh, they're tied to domestic violence events in some ways. Uh, actually, uh, you know, the, the standard reason why people uh, want to own a firearm is they, they would say for protection. Uh, but the, the, the chances of someone breaking into your home and you having to rely on a firearm to protect yourself is infinitely, infinitely small. Uh, so we have to keep that in perspective. Now, with that said, I mean, we're obviously clearly seeing some kind of a, uh, a trend here that we don't fully understand. So, and when, so when you ask me when I say, how do we cope? I think it starts with, you know, what do we know? And, and some of the information I just shared, I think, is, is a part of that. But, but I think also, again, that, you know, the, with the percentages that are out there, 2% of all gun deaths in the country would be attributable to a mass casualty situation. Um, you know, that signals us that we can remind ourselves and our families that uh, the, the culture and the society is still a very safe place and that we can continue to move out, uh, tend things, be in a public space, uh, and do that carefree. Does that mean we're not vigilant? Does that mean we're not paying attention about uh, what's around us? We should always be doing that. Uh, is it a good practice to when we enter into, a say, a large 
uh, arena type or a lot of crowd that we don't pay attention to where exits are? Absolutely. Uh, that's just good practice. It could be related to, uh, you know, any number of things besides some sort of, uh, you know, shooting incident uh, that's on everybody's mind. But uh, that doesn't mean that we're not sad and, and have been touched by these tragedies that have deeply affected us. And uh, at least on the short term, um, you know, upset our, our equilibrium. I'll just put it that way. You know, again, coping skills. One is to know about and the factual information about what's happened, but also not to just uh, gorge ourselves on all the cable news networks and all the things that are going on, and particularly to try to limit exposure to our children. Uh, there's particularly small children. There's no really need to, uh, you know, I always tell parents, if we stay calm, our kids will stay calm. If we're overly anxious and we're too much afraid, that's about us. And some of the listeners might need some extra help or assistance getting some extra help with that. But by and large, uh, the culture is still very, very safe and people should be able to go about their business and be calm about it. And, uh, and for many of us, that is very doable and people are doing that. There is a smaller minority of people that is so upsetting that they might need a little extra assistance and Mental Health Association Oklahoma stands ready to provide that. We're having this conversation, you know, at a time where mass violent events are sadly commonplace. But we, you know, we talked about this yesterday when when you were about to do that interview. You were like, something's different about this. Something feels it's a lot of us have become numb and to these events. But something shook us yesterday or this weekend. Why are these so different? Yeah, that, that's that's a great question, Matt. I think that again, I. I I mean, I realize some of my comments are out of my own personal experience, but I talk to people, I listen to people, I ask people questions, and I think that there's some commonality on this. But if you think about Sandy Hook, you think about Columbine, we were all shook to our core. We were glued to our TVs. We couldn't believe what we had, we had seen and what had happened there. Uh, and uh, And then we began to see them all over the country um, in different, in, in, you know, at different times of diff in different numbers. I think the, the, the mass shooting in Las Vegas, the sheer numbers and, you know, there, this crowd there is there enjoying uh, a concert and then suddenly shots rang out from a sniper um, uh, from a, one of the hotel rooms there. And I think that that was really a shock to us. Uh, but even then, I think we've seen people, and I've talked to, like I say, many other people have said, I was initially when the first one's shocked, and now I'm numb. It's almost like, oh, yeah, we had another one. Um, but you're right. I think the one, that, the, the two this weekend, I think the first one in El Paso, that it became so clear early, early on that this well might be tied to something targeting uh, people uh, because of their skin color or because of their ethnicity and that it was a potentially a part of a hate crime. I think that that really, it's oven in itself, really rocked us. And then we're in the process of coping and trying to make sense of that. 
And then suddenly right on top of it, 13 hours later, there's another one again. People out uh, enjoying their evening on a Saturday night in Dayton, Ohio, restaurants, uh, bars, uh, probably live music, just really having a nice time. And then this this happens suddenly. And it does just feel different. It feels like the the community, the culture, the American culture has been shaken. You know, we'll recover. But I think that we've got to really take a hard look at the availability of these military uh, assault rifles that are out there on the market and available to so many people. And it seems like each time there is one of these, it seems the pattern is that there's a a military assault rifle, that type of weapons that only the military settings use. Not We're not talking about shotguns. We're not talking about hunting rifles. We're not talking about even handguns. But, uh, but those type of high caliber extended magazine type, uh, I think we've got to have to really deal with that. You know, if you remember early on, we would have these discussions about those ideas right after the events. And then after a while, like, and nobody even brought it up anymore. Uh, but I think this time, you know, it feels different to me. And uh, I think it feels different to other people in the country. And we need to have a national discussion about this. Um, so several years ago, a uh, mass shooting happened. You did a radio interview and a gentleman kind of called you out and said, well, Mike, are you against guns? And you very, very carefully explained that, you know, what our policy is. So explain what our policy is on guns. Yeah, well, we we are not in a position. I mean, uh, again, I've, I've said here and, you know, I don't I, I, I don't I'm not saying it's an official position of the Mental Health Association of Oklahoma to uh, um oppose the availability of military assault rifles, although I'm not so sure we shouldn't maybe think about that or even even examine that as a potential official policy of the organization. Up until now, our policy has been very strongly that if you own a firearm, that you should always use A, trigger locks, um, and uh, B, um, either and, and or uh, using uh, regular uh, that design gun safes. Uh, again, for your for the listeners, uh, uh, there's about eighteen thousand people killed annually uh, in this country by homicide. A high percentage of those are with firearms, and then we have about forty six thousand people die every year in the U.S. from suicide. Not quite, almost three times as many. Again. A high percentage of those suicides, those 46,000 people who die every year in the United States by suicide at their own hands, uh, by far and away, the majority of those are from firearms. And so um, the the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, came out a few years ago and um, were able to release information that said that if you own a firearm in your home, that's it, one firearm in your home, the chances of you or someone in your family or a visitor dying by suicide in your home increases three to five times. So we, we strongly, our position is use trigger locks that are very inexpensive. And if you can afford it and have access to it, utilize a gun safe. Uh, now, uh, there is another layer out there that's being talked about around the country and has actually been adopted. I can't say I don't. I'm not. I'm not able right now to tell you how many states. But uh, these red flag laws is what they're called. Uh, 
Uh, and what is a red flag law? A red flag law is, is that if somebody expresses um, a threat uh, and sends a threat warning to uh, against themselves and or against others, that if they do have firearms in their possession, a court order can be issued to temporarily, uh, I want to emphasize that word, temporarily confiscate those firearms, secure them until which time the court is satisfied that the individual has got assistance, they've got help if, if they're struggling with something or if there's a domestic dispute going on, uh, that that can be resolved uh, and or whatever that may be, threat to self or others. And they can do that. Now, that has been passed in an increasing number of states, and it's been proposed. Last year in Oklahoma, the bill got killed, but it did get introduced, and it didn't get very far. But you're starting to see it creep our way in terms of these red flag laws. I think it'll be very hard to pass that here in Oklahoma. But if we keep having these kind of events, uh, uh, it may get easier to do that. But I I think there's a lot more we can do before we ever get to that point. But I think for your for the listeners, uh, awareness about red flag laws, and they can Google that, read about it in more detail if they'd like to do that. The whole reason I wanted to talk to you is that it seems like with these events, people are using mental illness as kind of a scapegoat. Like, well, it's just you know, people with mental illness. And so I wanted to, I wanted to uh, share this, you know, this is an old stat, but I think it kind of is very relevant today. It's that, you know, the Gallup uh, polling data from January, 2013 showed that 48% of adult Americans blame the mental health system a great deal for mass shootings in the U.S. And when there is an incident of mass gun violence, mental illness is routinely discussed as a likely cause and the rights and liberties of the up to 25% of Americans with mental health conditions are placed in jeopardy. So what do you think? You know, there is evidence to support that uh, when an individual is in an untreated state of mental illness, uh, that there is a higher chance that there could be some sort of a conflictual encounter of some type. Um, in participation and mass casualties, you know, there is um, mixed uh, evidence about that. We want to make sure that everybody needs treatment, uh, gets it. And, and by far and away, uh, the danger of someone who is in an untreated, serious, uh, untreated mental illness uh, of, of a serious nature, and they might be psychotic or they may be uh, having delusions, uh, which happens every day all around us. Uh, people are in that kind of state. And of course, it's very, these conditions are extremely treatable. Um, but we need to make sure that we uh, take the necessary steps. Uh, in the community to be able to get them to treatment and to provide that to them, which again, it's highly successful. Uh, but the chances of them being victimized or by, um, you know, this period of their life, short period of their life when they're not doing very well, the studies show very clearly that an individual in that state of mind is much, much more likely to become a victim. It could be that they get arrested and they're put into an open pod to be preyed upon by other prisoners, or it could be that they could somehow be involved, but they're much, much more likely to be a victim of a, uh, a crime, assault, 
um, violent crime directed toward them, then they then they actually participate. And the research and the data is pretty clear about that. Uh, but again, what we're battling here, Matt, is perception versus reality. And I'm trying to present to you reality and what the data shows and the way it is. But we're fighting against these perceptions that are very pervasive. We saw our very own president today and some of the other elected officials saying blaming mental illness on these events. I think that uh, more, way more in, in information investigation is needed uh, for that. And sometimes, you know, the gentleman down in uh, the perpetrator, alleged perpetrator down in El Paso, uh, it may or may not turn out to be obviously at minimal, he sounds to be a young white male probably very disenfranchised. Uh, and a lot of times what we're seeing more and more is that the heated supercharged rhetoric, both in the, in the traditional media, but also at different sites online is really stoking a lot of this. And I think that the social media carriers and providers have got to, I know they're looking at it. Uh, some people have been their sites in, uh, have been shut down. I think they need to be more aggressive about that. We can have political debates in um, social media. That doesn't have anything to do about threatening someone, uh, making threats toward any person or people group. Uh, that is, that, those are completely different things. In my mind, they are. So, um, you know, uh, I, I think we've got to um, look at that in a way that we always, 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 uh, we advocate when somebody is in a psychotic state, they do not understand. They've, they've crossed that, that line where they know further, they no longer fully understand in their current state of mind that they have an illness. And again, the, we're not talking about people who are violent. We're talking about people who are really sick. And they're, they're not doing well at all. And um, that we utilize the systems out there, the civil commitment process if necessary, that we utilize that in a way uh, to uh, make sure that person gets the help they need. And of course, a lot of the missing part of this is we don't have enough funding for a more robust community mental health care system. And until we are willing to invest in uh, uh, the community mental health care system at the rate needed, we will continue to have uh, people wandering the streets, at times homeless, uh, talking to themselves, that we'll continue to have families struggling with loved ones who uh, have family members who are psychotic, have histories of medication noncompliance. But we know that Outreach, engagement, uh, case management, availability of uh, pharmaceutical treatment, uh, other types of talking therapy, supporting therapy. Uh, these things, these techniques are highly effective, uh, but we sometimes struggle as a culture. We're not funding them and, and investing in them at the levels we need to. And I think that that uh, needs to be on the table here. So... Research has shown that the best way to reduce the risk of violent behavior by people with untreated mental illness is to detect these changes in the brain early and engage families in the process of treatment. So what are some of the ways that you would like to see our nation embrace that research 
and particularly in schools? You know, what are some of those things that are really going to make a difference? Well, I think one of the biggest things, again, uh, I encourage the listeners to go to uh, uh, the National Institute for Mental Health, NIMH, to their website and uh, do a search on a program called FIRST. And this actually was initiated by, as I recall, by the Obama, the Obama administration, and it came on the heels of one of the mass shootings. Uh, and, um, and so uh, him encouraging NIMH to really study this, and one of the things that they came up with is this program. I think it still goes by the name FIRST. And the idea is the first psychotic episode, which, by the way, for your listeners, so they will know, not always, but um, many oftentimes, uh, an initial psychotic break, particularly with um, um, schizophrenia, that it will occur in late teens, early 20s. There are many exceptions, but those exceptions are they're in the extreme minority. It's very common when that onset sets in. And so the idea behind first is that when that happens is that that person is surrounded by a real uh, intensive team effort that the the family is asked to participate with. It has um, psychoeducation components. It has uh, lots of availability for treatment, uh, medication management, uh, supportive counseling, you know, a whole host of things that are available to that individual. And the idea being is let's, let's really go all out. Let's put a lot of resources uh, into the, with the individual and their family at the time of the first psychotic break. And that has not been the practice. Uh, a lot of times the way it's set up now, it's more like fail three times or fail first or fail for a while, whatever it may be. Oh, well, now we're going to do something. We're going to now they failed at least three times and they've been rehospitalized and they've left the hospital stable and then things have fallen apart. Uh, so now after three times, we're going to make it make it available to them to be on a pack team. So um, uh, I think that, you know, that's uh, something that, uh, you know, we want to look at in terms of and, and they're, they're evaluating these programs, these first programs to see uh, what sort of difference they make. So we've got to get out of this mentality of, well, we'll just let people keep failing and then down the road somewhere, then we'll really try to do something more intensive. I love the idea of first, let's put the intensive work and effort into uh, after somebody has that first psychotic episode. We've, we've had this conversation um, a couple times. Imagine a, a world where our teen screen program was in every school. And it was every, you know, when you get into the ninth grade, you are part, you go through a, uh, an education seminar that teaches you about mental health and the warning signs and that you can sign up to be evaluated for, you know, those warning signs of suicide and bullying and all that, which is available here in Oklahoma and Tulsa and Oklahoma City. But on a very limited basis, we can only do so much. Um, you know, what, what, what do you think the world, the nation would be like if those sort of very proactive programs were available on a mass scale? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Matt. I think, you know, again, 
if there's anything that we really know about treatment care, whether physical health issues or mental health care issues, uh, doesn't really matter. Uh, the one constant theme that comes up over and over again is the earlier we can detect or identify and treat, whether it's a, a physical health issue or it's, it's a mental health issue or uh, it's, it's about addiction, whatever it is, we know that if we'll in, the earlier we intervene, the better the outcomes. And again, we're a downstream, you know, funded, designed uh, services and programs. We wait till bad things happen. So when you talk about that, you're talking about really recognizing that, you know, we need to screen for physical health issues. Uh, we need, you know, they screen for eye, you know, issues, uh, vision problems in school. Uh, you know, they, they screen for other things. But boy, oh my gosh, let's not screen for some kind of a um, mental health related issue. And, um, you know, for example, you know, as you mentioned, teen screen, that's not the only uh, vehicle to do that. But certainly it is one that is proven that it's very skilled at identifying uh, various categories of uh, what might be going on with the kid or at least it screens them and flags them for further evaluation. Some are mental health related, and but it also has questions about physical health complaints. So it, it could actually it actually screens for both. So uh, I think that that could be such a game changer if we had that in every school. Oh my gosh, you know. And again, I think with when you talk about the schools, Matt, you're also we have to remember here in Oklahoma. And it's true on many, many other states because I've surveyed many audiences. I've spoken on this topic many times. But again, uh, primarily parents hear the word school counselor and they think that there's someone in there who is a, a licensed mental health professional. And that's not the case. School counselors are, it would be a closer description if we called them academic advisors. And do they, which is very important. We need academic advisors for our kids, help them with scholarship applications, letters of reference, uh, uh, class schedules, and uh, looking at what classes they need to take to graduate or whatever that may be. That's a big job. But it's not really someone that the kids tell us this. It isn't necessarily someone they would go talk to about something going on that might be bothering them or troubling them in some way. Uh, and the kids all know that. Uh, but the parents, we tend to be like, well, you know, I've heard parents say, well, um, at my child's school, they have four counselors. And what they mean is they have four academic school counselors, which are very important, but they don't have a mental health professional. And why would we not fund and invest in having a mental health professional when there's all those kids that are all right there and where we could really be able to uh, actually flag and identify uh, kids before it gets too far and before while we can really treat it again, going back to what we talked about just a minute ago, is that the earlier detection, assessment, treatment, the earlier it occurs, the less problems down the road somewhere. And uh, that might be much, much more complicated and hard to get out of. So uh, that those are... Uh, their whole, your whole question about early warning signs prevention, 
big deal. All right. So I just have one or two more questions for you. So you've been a mental health professional for over 35 years, right? Um, yeah, actually, yeah. I'm, clo- I'm getting close to 40 years there, Matt. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's closing in on 40, uh, yeah. my friend. So when was the first mass violence event that you can remember either personally or maybe as a mental health professional? Anything come to mind? Was it Columbine? Was it something before that? Well, I remember when I was very young. I don't remember. I can't tell you exactly how old I was, but I remember the uh, uh, the, the the sniper from the uh, clock tower uh, in Austin, Texas, at the University of Texas, uh, which is still being analyzed and discussed. I actually saw parts of a documentary not very long ago talking about that whole event, that individual. Now, that was the first one I can remember. Now. You know, I would argue that the Kennedy assassination was a form of, uh, um, uh, you know, only two people ultimately were shot. But to me, that was a part of domestic terrorism. Uh, Then I, you know, we want to also not forget that it didn't use a firearm. It used a bomb. But the Oklahoma City bombing was a mass casualty event, which turned out it was uh, domestic terrorism. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, you know, those are the ones, I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't remember what much changed after the, um, uh, there, I know there were others. I just, that, that's the one that I can remember. And how many years ago was that? That was a long, long time ago. And then, uh, I definitely, like most people, I remember exactly where I was when heard about the Oklahoma city bombing and, uh, uh, I knew I can tell you exactly where I was and uh, what happened the, a good part of the rest of the day with me. And uh, but I think people forget about that as a mass casualty event, too. So and then, I, you know, Sandy Hook, uh, you know, that one was and Virginia Tech. That one uh, was definitely sticks out in my mind. And that, that's what I say. Then after a while, they kind of started like, eh, you know, uh, darn it, that it wasn't, you know, and I think some of that was for our own self-protection, uh, trying to just, to, you know, so we can cope, we can manage, we can function uh, and go about our lives, what have you. But it just feels like as we, where we started, we're back to kind of where we started today, Matt. But I think this, this one feels different. People are um, rocked to their core. Now, again, uh, what is the shelf life of that worry and determination that something needs to be done here or we need to address this more effectively. Uh, and how quickly in the news cycle do we move on to the next event or the next, you know, something's always happening. It's covered on the media, on the cable 24-7. So are we going to forget about it and just move on? I hope not. Uh, I have a feeling that this time maybe that it could be different. Uh, but we need our political leaders to get on board together. And so we can come together and say we want to work together so this doesn't happen again. Thanks, Mike, for being here. You always provide such wonderful insight. Um, I do want to point out, you know, uh, a lot of times after these events, we can feel powerless. But, you know, everybody has a role to play in making a difference in legislation. So I would just encourage everyone to go to our website. It's mhaok.org and uh, type in forward slash advocate and sign up for our advocacy alerts. Sign up for opportunities where you can speak your mind to your legislator and tell them, 
we've had enough. This is, we will not stand for another mass violent event. Um, especially, you know, as you said in the Tulsa world, Mike, it's not if, it's when something like that will happen to us, I, you know? Yeah, I think that's a real takeaway of this weekend is uh, a sense of it, it's not it, it's not if, it's when. And, uh, you know, we need to prepare if it never comes and we're still prepared. And uh, uh, so I, I think you're right on that, man. All right. Okay. Well, Mike, since you are our guest today, I'm going to leave it to you. We always end saying, um, go do good things. So especially right now, we need people to go do good things. So go about their business, uh, do what you would normally do, go about your, go do the good things that you're doing every day, uh, get right back up on that horse and go out there and it'll be good and you'll feel better for it and your family will feel better for it. And, uh, and uh, then we can, uh, that, that's, that's not letting these individuals win. We want to go about our business and not let them impact us in that way. All right, my bros, you go do good things. Thank you, Matt Gleason. (laughs)